Hello, everyone, and such a warm welcome to each of you to this sixth public discussion tonight with Thomas Morgan and facilitator Martina Lutz-Schneider from Sunday's episode, Officer Down, Episode 6 of the CNN original series, The Redemption Project with Van Jones, which is an eight-week docuseries that takes viewers into the room as offenders come face-to-face with those impacted by their violent crimes as part of the restorative justice process. As many of you already know in watching Sunday's episode, in 1997, Tom was shot and left to die in a gang incident of severe violence. Jason Samuel was 17 when he pulled the trigger and changed the Morgans' lives in that moment of severe violence. As many of us witnessed during Episode 6, Tom and Jason met at San Quentin for a restorative justice victim-offender dialogue, which commenced much before the circle process itself. Tonight, it is a deep honor to have Tom with us to share and reflect on restorative justice and also where he might be at since that dialogue process. While Jason can't be with us tonight, he will be released next year, I believe, and we do want to acknowledge his courage and willingness equally in allowing millions to be a part of his and the overall extremely powerful process. Also with us tonight, as I mentioned, is Martina Schneider, and she's with the AHIMSA Collective. The AHIMSA Collective works to respond to harm in ways that foster wholeness for everyone. And for more about their work, which is a wide range of restorative justice process services and trainings, please go to ahimsacollective.net. She was introduced to restorative justice by our dear colleague and friend Dominic Barter back in 2003 through her engagement with nonviolent communication, which is also termed NVC. She is a devoted RJ advocate and has volunteered in school and prison settings. She received her BA in Interdisciplinary Studies from the California Institute of Integral Studies, CIIS, in San Francisco, with a focus in restorative justice and a conflict resolution certificate from Sonoma State University. In 2015, Martina began to facilitate victim-offender dialogues in severe and violent crimes in California state prisons through Insight Prison Project. She now collaborates directly with the Office of Victim and Survivors' Rights and Services and serves as a Victim Offender Dialogue Consultant and Victim Offender Dialogue Lead Facilitator. And of course, again, everyone, thank you for being with us. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and executive producer of Restorative Justice on the Rise, which was founded in 2011 to provide a powerful dialogue and podcast series featuring global experts in the field of restorative justice and also allies with major organizations globally in the field to raise the visibility of restorative justice worldwide. It is much more than a podcast. It's helping catalyze and uplift the millions involved in restorative justice work, also known as RJ work, worldwide. 
Please check out our website and over 130 episodes of dialogues, including one with Van Jones, surrounding the, the critical launch of cut50.org. That's restorative justice on the rise, all one word, .org. And also to access the social assets for the Redemption Project and the CNN website for all the information on the series, we've posted a, a button for you to click on the webcast or also on the replay page sidebar. You can also go directly to CNN.com. Replays of each Sunday's episodes are available at go.cnn.com. Recently, in January of 2019, Van Jones, who is the CEO of the Reform Alliance and a wonderful array of leadership, including athletes, um, CEOs, and others, uh, launched the Reform Alliance, which is a project to dramatically reduce the number of people who are unjustly under the control of the criminal justice system, starting with probation and parole. Please visit Reform Alliance all one word, dot com, and follow Van Jones, Cut 50, and Reform on Twitter and Facebook for all the updates, including Van's new podcast, Incarceration, Inc. And just want to give a big shout-out to Van and his crew and to Magic Labs Media, to the CNN Original Series staff, to the podcasting team at CNN, and to all the people who are behind the Reform Alliance really doing some powerful work to illuminate the, the true and raw power of restorative justice. So thank you very much to each of you for that work. And um, so without further ado tonight, it's, again, just a deep honor to have both Tom and Martina with us tonight. And I just want to welcome you both again. Thank you so much for being here. You're, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you, Molly. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And so, as many of us know from being uh, a part of these discussions throughout these weeks, we have a mini panel where we're going to do some, some dialogue together, and then we're going to open up for some submitted questions tonight. So please, at any time, as a part of this dialogue and discussion, feel free to submit your questions via the Q&A tab, which is visible on your webcast link. If you have um, the ability to raise your hand um, to press star 2 if you're having any issues, we have uh, a way to get a hold of you to help support you to submit your questions. But that, that Q&A tab is your ticket to get involved tonight at any time. So we hope to hear your reflections or comments or questions tonight at any time, and we'll get into those later on in the hour. So just wanted to open up tonight with just an acknowledgement of how powerfully the episode ended um, the other evening, Sunday's episode, of course. Um, and we know, of course, that, that that the episode itself was only a microcosm of the year or more of this process that you all embarked upon together. But I'm wondering if um, you'd be willing to share, and Tom or Martina, you can take this first, whoever would like, what has your experience been since then? 
and to this very moment. And if there's anything you'd like to share about where you're at since the closing of the actual dialogue. Um, well, I get, I'll go first, I guess. Um, the uh, After we had the dialogue, we had uh, actually had uh, a dialogue between Jason and Christy uh, that was uh, uh, pretty special. Uh, and after that dialogue, we had another dialogue uh, between myself, Jason, and Christy uh, a third time. Um, and uh, since then, um, uh, we've uh, also had Jason's third parole hearing, which, which was in March. Uh, which both myself and Christy attended and argued uh, and requested that the board find him suitable for parole. Uh, at the conclusion of the uh, parole hearing, the board found him suitable for parole, and now, uh, as far as we know, it's on the governor's desk to either approve or disapprove of that recommendation or decision by the Board of Parole Hearings. So um, we're hopeful, uh, but we haven't gotten any official word yet, uh, but we're hopeful he'll uh, soon be released. Thank you. That That's really incredible to hear that there were further processes on, um, do you care to reflect on, on any particulars around those, or shall we go to Martina for some reflections first? Yeah, I can say, you know, this, this was, this was a very special dialogue for me because of the, you know, the depth of relationship that the participants developed that is you know usually not not the case and certainly not something you know that we expect to happen but it really made it very you know very moving and and heartwarming uh you know christie said um that jason had been part of their life in a bad way for so long and she would like to change that and, you know, would like for him to be part of their life in a better way. So we are, you know, with the prospect of him being released soon, you know, we are talking about doing something together. We already did a little presentation here in my small town of Sonoma with Tom and Christy and some other victims around victim of inner dialogues and now we're hoping, you know, that Jason can join us and maybe show the episode and, you know, that they together have an opportunity to share their story. Which is, and, and Jason, you know, he is, he has worked really hard on his accountability and we find him to be really insightful and very well articulated and really you know, speaking to his experience of what happened, and he has a lot of insight. And, you know, we call that connecting the dots from uh, inside, 
you know, support accountability groups, connecting the dots of what were the events in one's life that ultimately allowed them, you know, to commit the crime that they have. So, and, and Jason is really, has made remarkable process and worked really, really hard on himself over the years. And both Christy and Tom, just, you know, have a lot of appreciation for how much he's taken to heart what happened. And I think it really mm. showed in the, in the episode, too, you know, the deep remorse he felt. And, you know, as a, as a facilitator, that is just so important, you know, that the people are able, you know, to either, first of all, feel it, but then also really able to express it. And, and mm-hmm. Jason was always very forthcoming and just straightforward with everything, not trying to be anything that he wasn't. So that made it, you know, I think really easy for Tom and Christy to to trust him and to believe in him. Martina, I know that you have been doing this work for, for a long time. And I'm curious to know on that point of accountability, do you have anything you'd like people to know about what you've seen around how restorative justice actually might be a little bit harder? I know we're going to maybe later go a little bit more deeply into this thing called restorative justice. However, accountability is something that certainly can't be forced. But what do you see happening in your in this process or in, in general? around restorative justice and its relationship to cultivating accountability. Yeah, so, you know, if I if I look at the criminal legal system, you know, where they you know, kind of I think mistaken punishment for taking responsibility and be accountable, I feel like people actually are not really held accountable because they don't have to really listen to the impact. To me, that is really, you know, being fully accountable and taking responsibility for what you did if you really deeply understand what the impact is. And that, you know, and it's entirely can only be defined by the by the survivor, by the victim, you know, by the community that's impacted by wrongdoing and and, and crime. So and it plays an incredible, crucial role, uh, I think, for for victims to hear, you know, it's in the trauma world we talk about first and second trauma. The first trauma level of trauma is the harm itself, the second level of trauma often is a lack of validating one's experience, you know, and that is, you know, in sexual harm cases even even more important. So when the experience is not acknowledged, that is another level of harm. So accountability is, is really crucial. And it also... You know, I always talk about, I don't know how many, most people have watched Spider-Man. You know, there's a scene in there where uh, the grandfather dies and he says to, you know, Spider-Man with with, uh, great power comes responsibility. And it's actually also true when you turn that around. And a lot of people don't know that, that when you're actually stepping into responsibility and accountability, you feel stronger as a human being. 
you know, you're you're actually stepping into your own strengths. And that is, you know, people really feel that when we do these these dialogues. And it and has an you know, amazing benefit for them to know. Oh my you know, like one one remember one one man who said, Wow, where I thought there was only cowardness, I found courage and I didn't even know I had it. So it really helps people to be, you know, stronger, stronger people. And it is paramount, I believe, for victims to uh, have full accountability. And we, for, for me as a facilitator, I think long and hard before, you know, there would be a lot of discussion to bring a victim into a dialogue setting when there is not full accountability. So, and as somebody who has done a lot of inside prison work, you know, and, and group work, uh, and, and most of our facilitators here in California have that experience, we are so lucky to, you know, have worked with responsible parties, the people inside, behind the walls, offenders, uh, you know, to help them actually to do the steps to be, be fully accountable. So mm -hmm. I think, does that answer your question? Very much so. And it kind of mm -hmm. leads to the the curiosity of what your experience was, um, Tom, if I may, just find out a little bit more if you're willing to share. When was the first moment that you knew that you were going to do a dialogue and also be filmed? And how did that feel to you? Did you have some reservations or was it just a, a no-brainer? Well, if I could give maybe a little bit of uh, context, uh, and hopefully that will help make the Absolutely. answer to the question a little clearer. Um, in January of uh, 2016, uh, well, actually, it was late 2015, I was notified that Jason was uh, uh, eligible for parole and that he, that he would be uh, being considered for a parole hearing sometime in early 2016. Uh, and that actually kind of caught me off guard because uh, I, uh, according to his sentencing, uh, originally he, he shouldn't have been up for parole for probably another four or five years. Uh, what I didn't realize at the time is that since his original sentencing, California had passed uh, a series of laws that had to do with youthful offenders and their consideration for parole. And as a result of those youthful offender statutes, uh, Jason had come up for parole much earlier than I expected. Um, but frankly, by that time in our journey, you know, he, he and his existence had kind of faded into the background, uh, and I hadn't been giving it a great deal of thought. Uh, initially, I hadn't intended to even show up at the, his first parole hearing. Uh, I felt that we had moved in some ways beyond that, um, and uh, that attending the hearing would just dredge up a lot of, you know, old wounds that had at least partially healed by that point. But then I got
got in touch with the DA's office, uh, the DA who was in charge of attending parole hearings, and uh, I discovered all of the work that went into these hearings by members of the DA's office. And at that point, I thought, well, you know, if these people are going to go through this much trouble, uh, time, expense, uh, that the least I could do is show up at the hearing. So his hearing was scheduled in January of 2016, and I kind of prepared for it like I would um, uh, a case in court. Uh, I'm an attorney now. Um, so I, you know, showed up at the hearing that day uh, fully intending to argue that he be denied parole and kept in prison. Uh, but then uh, Jason walked into the parole room, uh, and... I can remember writing on my legal pad, not what I expected. Um, he, he, far from being the, you know, dangerous, evil gangbanger that uh, I had been, that, that the impression that I'd been left at during his trial, uh, and I had held this kind of naive belief that, uh, you know, the years, nearly two decades in prison would have turned him into some sort of super criminal. Um, uh, and I, nothing could have been farther from the truth. He, he walked in with his eyes down at the floor, uh, shuffling along in leg irons and uh, waist chains with two big guards on either side of him. Uh, he never looked at me uh, during the course of the parole hearing, which I'd come to kind of describe as a, an emotional autopsy on a human being. Uh, I learned a lot about him that I'd never known. I learned of the uh, traumas that he had suffered growing up uh, with his family, uh, with ending up in foster homes and part of the juvenile dependency system. Uh, he was living uh, on the streets at the time that the shooting occurred. Uh, he couldn't read or write. But I also learned that he'd taken himself uh, and gotten his high school diploma while he was in prison. Uh, and he'd actually taught himself to read and write while in solitary confinement with the assistance of the guards on duty at the time. I learned that he transferred himself to San Quentin Prison in order to take advantage of the programs that are available there. Um, and uh, he, he said that he'd found God in his life. And he talked about a lot of the programs that he was in, inter-prison programs that he was involved in. And by the end of the hearing, uh, rather than arguing for his, you know, continued incarceration, I told the board that I left, I would leave the decision in their hands, that if they decided to release him, I was fine with that. And if they decided to keep him in prison, I was fine with that. So uh, he also told a story uh, that I wanted to relay that day during the hearing that really stuck with me. And he said that in one of his groups, he had been approached by a retired law enforcement officer who was doing work in prison groups in the prisons. And Jason said that he had talked with this retired officer and instead of, you know, hating Jason and, you know, treating him badly, this officer listened to his story knowing what Jason had done, that he had nearly killed another law enforcement officer. 
And as he told the story, there were tears in his eyes. And I thought, if that person that he didn't even know could have that kind of impact on him, uh, what kind of impact might I have on him if I were to place myself in that same position? So his second parole hearing came up uh, in June of 2018. And, um, I'm sorry, 2017. Uh, and at that hearing, I, again, left the decision in the hands of the board, but I also told Jason at that time that I wanted to help him, you know, that if that I forgave him, that I understood why he had done what he had done, uh, that I didn't think that I needed to give him forgiveness, but if he wanted it, I would provide it. Um, but I, and I relayed his recollection of that contact with that retired officer. And, you know, I told him that I, I would do, you know, whatever I could to help him. Uh, if he, you know, thought that that would help. And when I left the hearing, I realized, you know, in the weeks that followed that it was illegal for him to contact me. If he wanted my help, uh, he couldn't get on the phone. He wouldn't be allowed to phone me. He couldn't send me a letter. If he did any of those things, he'd actually be in violation of the law. Uh, and when I came to that realization, that's when I contacted CDCR, California Department of uh, Corrections Rehabilitation, uh, Victim and Survivor Services, because that, they were the only contact I had uh, with the system. Uh, and they put me in touch uh, with Martina, and uh, that led to uh, the BOD. Um, now, you asked about the film crew, uh, or the filming of the incident. That didn't come in until after I'd contacted Martina and after she and I and Jason had begun our work towards the the, the dialogue. Uh, and Martina, you know, uh, phoned me up one day and said, there's a film crew interested in filming the dialogue and, you know, asked me if I had any, any objections. And I thought because of the, the context, and they're not context, but because of the circumstance that it might provide a powerful message. I had no idea that mm -hmm. I was CNN um, mm -hmm. and that it might be viewed as widely as it was. But uh, I agreed to it. Uh, Jason agreed to it. Uh, and the rest, I guess, as they say, is history. Mm. Did, did you want to add anything to the the links uh, and the specifics of the process that that Martina and you engaged in, and also with Jason. We, we saw glimpses of it, of course, in the episode. But, uh, again, it wasn't just, um, you know, a show up uh, on the day of the dialogue. It, it, there was about a year of, of pre-meetings. Uh, Is that correct, Tom? And Martina certainly chimed in here, too. Yeah, that that is correct, but it wasn't because there was a great deal of preparation needed. I I had a very specific uh -huh. message for Jason, and I didn't want to meet him, you know, for some sort of illusory closure. 
uh, or uh, mm-hmm. to find out why he had done what he had done. I knew why he did what he did. I, I my specific intent uh, when I, you know, got started in this whole thing was to provide him with encouragement and motivation so that he would be successful when he got out because he was going to get out. Mm. And I thought, what a small thing to do uh, to potentially provide, you know, some incredible motivation for an individual who no one has ever motivated or encouraged before. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it cost nothing for me to do that. And I truly believe that those people that suffer the worst tragedies have the potential to do the greatest things in their life. And I could imagine few tragedies than uh, what turned out to be the story of Jason's life. And I, I see a great deal of power in that that struggle that he is involved in and has lived through. And I wanted I wanted to get that across to him what his potential was, and that that didn't require any real preparation. Uh, I, I I think the length of time that it took, you know, had more to do with people's schedules and um, you know mm-hmm. the, the intrinsic difficulties with you know doing anything in a prison setting. I can add a little bit too. There was also I went to Germany to take care of my father, and then we're waiting. We're waiting for uh, you know CNN to all that get approved. Because Jason, you know, being so there is in prison now over the last you know ten fifteen years, there are more and more prisons that offer you know self help groups. And Jason already had done so much work. It really makes our work in the Nintendo dialogue quite easy when we, you know, when we get a programmer. And I think what I would like to say about that is that, you know, and people, it's hard to imagine, you know, people changing, especially when people have been that violent. But what I've, you know, experienced from you know, having been in two, almost two-year groups, and then also, you know, meeting a lot of men through my victim of the dialogue work and also being part of the Ahimsa Collective, is we we sometimes don't believe that or, or want to trust that when people come out of these often really intense, challenging situations in which those crimes take place, you know, when they are in a different environment, so many really do take to heart what happened. And I find them to be much more motivated to be the best that they can be, you know, much more than people out here, because, you know, they want to prove to themselves and to the world that they can change and that they can better themselves. And that is, I'm just talking about you know, programmers here. I'm not yeah. saying that is an inmate. It's okay, yeah, maybe people. Go ahead. Um, Go ahead, Martina. Yeah. Um, I was just, I was outside. I was 
brought it back in here to get another, you know, my voice better. Um, yeah, so that, that that is one thing I've really noticed, you know, in a lot of the people behind bars that I've worked with, that there is really a strong motivation, you know, to better themselves. And if people get, you know, support to do so, it's amazing transformations that you can see. And that that is actually something that I think really needs to be shared more with the world and particularly with, you know, survivors of of, of violent crimes that want to know, you know, how is this person taken to heart? Is there any change? You know, how how have they been impacted by what they have done? And that's to me why victim offender dialogues are such a powerful process because victims get to see for themselves who this person is today and assess if mm. there's still, you know, a security threat to them or not. And so Martina, thank you. And, and to tie into that, um, it does appear that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, both of you on this, if you have something you want to add, but it does appear that through a restorative justice process and and unique to it is the ability to learn more about the other person and and I know um Tom was sharing that um in the case of Jason he already knew the story and was very well aware uh of you know of Jason's situation and um mm-hmm. and yet you know we many of us don't realize that they can't uh the the offender cannot reach out without um the violation of law um of the the con- no contact order and so it just it feels like there's something here in a restorative justice process that humanizes but there's also things that perhaps we can work on around um you know uh cultivating the ability for there to be contact if it's wanted and i'm i'm mm-hmm. i guess i'm in a roundabout manner i'm i'm asking do you either of you have any thoughts on what w- if it would make it easier or would it make it scarier for the system to consider for example the no contact piece um because it 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 does allow the aspect of humanizing the situation if that's wanted if if people want to discover more about um their offender or likewise yeah but one 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 piece I would like to actually speak on in, in regards to the no contact and Tom was speaking to that too that you know Jason didn't look at him during the parole hearing. That is actually often, I've heard many survivors and victims say, oh, he didn't look at me. And that was also came up in the, in the episode with Donald Lacey and, and Christopher, you know, where he spoke to, he didn't look at me. So they are actually told in sentencing trials, parole hearings, they are not allowed to the victim, uh, to look at the victim. And Martina, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Um, Martina, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, excuse me. Could you try putting your mouth closer to your mic, or um, oh, if you're on speakerphone, maybe try putting it just on regular mic. Okay. 
Um, it, okay. We're having this, a little trouble this, hearing you. Yeah, is this better? Is this better? It's, it's slightly better, can yes. Please, please keep going. Speaker phones okay. can be tricky if you were using that. Just make sure you're, yeah. you're close to your mic. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, what I what I was was speaking to is that in in hearings, parole hearing, sentencing trials, the offenders are not allowed to look at the victim. Unfortunately, victims don't necessarily know that, and that is you know a small thing that actually causes a lot of harm because so many of them want to know something of how the person that has harmed them, you know, feels about what they did. So that's just something, you know, we would like everybody to know out in the world that they are not allowed to look. So when they don't look at the victim, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no remorse, that they don't care, you know. Um, so I wanted to just put that out there. And then in terms of the no contact you know, this is in to protect survivors of, of crime. And I think, unfortunately, what happens sometimes when we do create rules, you know, they get inflexible. And then when we actually need something different, there's no room for that. So I, to me, if survivors, you know, would like to have contact, then you know, I'm all for, you know, finding ways uh, where they still, you know, there's there's safety guaranteed, but to, mm -hmm. to find ways to to have more, you know, have contact. But like the victim offender dialogues, and and I am full in in agreement that those are always initiated by the victim. Thank you, Martina. That's great. That's great to clarify. Yeah. And also, um, as far as you know, when when you say, of course, the safety and the needs of the victim would could could possibly very much still be met. Um, where we also are looking at, um, it doesn't necessarily mean jump right into a face-to-face -face dialogue. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. There's other ways yeah. that it that it can be commenced. And I'm I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if you might be willing to describe, kind of just in general, like what are the other options for people um, who may not be ready for an in-person dialogue, but who do want to initiate something um, with their, you know, with their offenders or offenders. Yeah. So in you know this is still this. So I only work or primarily pretty much only work uh, in state prisons. Uh, the Ahimsa Collective also does, you know, uh, victim circles out, outside prison. But in regards to, you know, contact with an inmate, you know, that would still, at this point, we would start with the victim offender dialogue. But when I, you know, when I start speaking with a victim, I, you know, we don't promise that there will be a dialogue. You know, and and sometimes, especially like in domestic uh, violence or sexual harm, we might even suge suggest that uh, a surrogated situation where they might go in to a prison to meet somebody who has caused the same kind of harm, you know, committed the same kind of crime. But something like that could be much more beneficial. 
We have been bringing uh, many survivors into prisons to speak and, you know, victim impact classes, which have been really, really impactful. And then, you know, there is a discussion and exploration also of, of maybe there used to be a apology letter program, so that is also something that, you know, uh, we're, we're looking into how to make that happen again. But other than that, there, you know, and then actually there are victims and survivors that just go in and and, and try to meet with the person, you know, during regular visiting, which we do not advise. And often the system will, you know, flag them and they wouldn't get access. But, yeah, so there are a few alternatives other than really going through victim services that I know mm-hmm. of, that mm-hmm. I know of at this point. And, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the victim of the dialogue is really – even though it's been done for many, many years, it's just in the last four years, and, and now with the new governor taking on a whole new level of, you know, there's a lot of interest in expanding the program. We know the governor, you know, has actually released, I think it's $100 million towards victim-centered services. So mm-hmm. you know, we hope that, you know, the program is going to get a big boost and that we can, you know, offer this to, to many more survivors of crime. And is that immediate release of funds um, or does that come up later in the year or how, how is that working? We don't, for, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know yet. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, that's very I good news. Yeah. I received that information to <clears throat> one of the victim advocacy groups. Uh, California Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. Mm-hmm. They, they're the ones that, you know, uh, informed us that that's what's happening. And they do a lot of legislative work in, you know, victim rights. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love, I'd love now just to go um, back to you, Tom, and if you're willing, would you share a bit about restorative justice your your thought on on it broadly uh, on what you might say if you were speaking to another victim of crime and how um how it how it was beneficial for you and how it might be beneficial for others um, and then it, it, were, were there any downsides to it that you'd want people to make sure they know about Um, no, well, to answer your last question first, no, uh, I I can't see any downsides to our circumstance. Uh, I know that there are probably challenges that are specific to you know each individual circumstance, but in our case, no. I I um, I found it to be remarkable and extraordinary uh, journey um, i i got my wife back after a two decade absence um, what i would say to other uh, victims uh, first 
right uh, to every bit of pain and anger that uh, that you have uh, developed since the injury was done to you. Uh, but I'd also like them to know that there there is the possibility of leaving that all behind uh, in uh, our travels and uh, uh, engagements since the 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 uh, the bod. You know, I've learned the stories of many people, um, um, people who, decades after their uh, trauma, still show up at pool hearings, angry, uh, uh, wanting the offender to remain in prison uh, as long as humanly possible. And, uh, again, that, that is their absolute right. But if they can find a way... Uh, because I can I can tell you that Christie felt very much that same way, um, virtually up to the point that she saw uh, a picture of his smiling face uh, and learned a little bit about uh, how his life had uh, been affected by his remarkably difficult upbringing. Uh, and in that recognition of his humanity and the things that he'd gone through, she was able to release that anger that she held against him. And in doing so, she released herself from uh, what was very much a prison uh, that she was living in at the time. And that absolutely changed her life. Um, you know, I'd like to take credit, you know, for you know, anticipating all of this ahead of time, uh, but I can't. Um, as it was just something that unfolded as we went through the process. And I think I think if people knew that that, that alternative existed, that they, through, you know, either forgiveness or understanding of their uh, offender, could be released from that prison that they were placed in, at the time the injury was done, uh, that a great deal of suffering and pain and hardship could be alleviated. And I can't hardly think of any uh, better use of our time and energy. Um, I look on what Martina does as... Um, I, I told people before, if I got to the end of my life and I was lying on my deathbed and I had accomplished, you know, just a fraction of what she accomplishes in each and every VOD that she facilitates, I would have lived a, uh, a, a, a wonderful life. Um, I can't. I can't overemphasize how amazing these facilitators are and um, the gift they give to the people uh, that they come in contact with. Um, and ironically, they seem to be almost relegated to the bottom of the food chain in regards to funding and attention uh, and that was one of the reasons to answer one of your other questions, you know, why we agreed.
into the filming because, uh, yeah, I suppose if I had known about a program like this years before, I might have been involved in it years before. And I might have, mm-hmm. you know, thereafter avoided uh, all of the pain that was su- that was suffered in that intervening time. And I, I hope that people will see our episode and go, hey, you know, maybe that's something that I could pursue. Um, you know, uh, if if only a few people did that, it would be well worth, you know, whatever. Um, you know, inconvenience or minor embarrassment that, uh, you know, I, we may have suffered as a result of filming. Mm. Uh, that is just really deeply moving um, that you would be so selfless, you and Christy both, to share of your lives in the way that you have um, in order to support something better. In, in order to support something, um, getting out there to people who don't don't necessarily know that this is an option, um, like you were saying, and and certainly for Jason to be willing to share in such a vulnerable way, um, I, I recall in the episode how you, in an almost paternal way, put your hand on his shoulder when he he was really struggling, and clearly clearly very deeply um, accountable and and just open, an open book to you um, in your time together. And that, that must have just been very significant. Um, and I, I guess that leads in the direction of um, maybe what we should do right now is take, take just a pause because there are comments coming in. I, I really would like to explore with you um, where you see things heading possibly um, in crossing fingers that, that he is released. And um, we could talk about a little bit about that in a moment. But I, I want to pause and just thank everybody for participating in this discussion series. Of course, this is hosted by Restorative Justice on the Rise in alliance with the Reform Alliance and the Redemption Project with Van Jones. Um, what an amazing and impactful series this has been so far. And one of the comments tonight um, comes from Alaska. Angela, thank you for your comment. And I really want to share this at this moment with, with everyone. Um, she shares, this episode was so powerful. The level of compassion Tom and Christy displayed towards Jason was so moving. It truly felt as if a weight had been lifted from all participants and the impact could be felt by us, the viewers, as well. I know this dialogue has forever changed Jason's life, and I pray it had an equally profound impact and healing effect on the suffering Tom and Christy have endured over the decades. Thank you for sharing your life story with us. And again, if you if you would like to take part in the discussion tonight with comments or questions, uh, head over to the Q&A tab and submit something there. We'll be periodically checking them within the next couple minutes as we head towards conclusion tonight. And um want to also acknowledge that if you missed an episode, uh, you can go to CNN, or excuse me, go.cnn.com to access 
the previous episodes just by using your cable provider login. There's also um, some excellent clips there and more links and information about all of the restorative justice programs that have been featured throughout this series. And again, tonight's specially featured um, organization is the AHEMSA Collective. And again, please, by all means, visit their website and check out all the great work that they're doing. Really appreciate Sonia Shaw and all of the team, including, of course, Martina Lutz-Snyder, who's with us tonight, for, for the incredible work that, that you all are doing. And, of course, Tom, thank you for acknowledging it's so true that facilitators such as, as you, Martina, and all those doing this kind of work are really paving a new direction um, very bravely and courageously, one person, one conflict, one relationship, and of such um, depth at a time. So. So thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for your perseverance. So in, in coming back um, now to, to the discussion, Tom, I, I'm, I'm curious to know if you might be willing to share a bit more about that moment where you touched um, Jason's shoulder and comfort, comforted him a bit. Um, you've been sharing that, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, that one of the, the the big things for you, and, and perhaps for Christy as well, um, is for him to uh, come out and, and do good with, with what he has learned and how he has grown. W would you be willing to share if there's anything um, kind of on the burner as far as uh, work that, that you might be um, considering or the two of you possibly staying in touch to do something? Is there anything like that going on for the future? Um, well, uh, yes, uh, but what that might be, it's, uh, uh, I know we've been involved in a, a victim offender education group since uh, the victim offender dialogue, and uh, uh, Martina organized a conference a few months back that we spoke at. Um, uh, one of my uh, problems is that I, I work full time, uh, but I'm hoping as, uh, uh, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, able to uh, retire uh, or reduce my workload somewhat, I, I would really like to get involved uh, uh, in restorative justice. I think uh, uh, I have so much admiration for the people that do it. Uh, and it seems like, uh, given our experiences, that we might have something to contribute. But I'm not exactly sure what that might be at this point. Um, you, you mentioned about, uh, you know, that moment uh, when I... Uh, place my hand on Jason's shoulder, what, what comes to mind uh, when I think about that is all of the victims um, that ask why something happened to them. Uh, and I think in that moment, um, you know, there's potentially an answer for some people. Um, and I can remember, you know, asking that same question in 
a slightly different way when uh, Jason shot me. Uh, and while watching the pain and suffering of the people around me, I couldn't help but think that this can't just happen and not result in some kind of, not consequence, but something positive. It, it seemed like there there was so much anguish and pain and, and injury that for you know something not to be made out of all of that energy would be such a waste. And again, it, to me, it seems like a very easy and simple thing to do to reach out to another human being and tell them that they have worth and acknowledge your trust in them and the work that they've done. And it, it, I believe that in that act, there is great power to motivate that person. And I think the alternative, I think in examining the alternative to that, you can see the utility of that simple act in humanity. Because the alternative is to simply punish people, uh, throw them away in concrete buildings, and eventually let them out and expect that they're going to go into the world and do good things. And why we believe that that's true, I just, it escapes me every time I reflect on it. Uh, the alternative, again, it seems like that the simple act of grace, kindness, reaching out and touching another human being and telling them that they have worth and that you want them to go out and do something good. Now, we can't guarantee that Jason's going to go out and do anything good. You know, we can't see into his soul. Uh, I have no illusions that he's some kind of perfect person. But with the strength of that kind of support and encouragement behind him, it seems to me just virtually impossible that that he could not be successful. So, again, it, to me, it's a, a very simple and basic thing that, uh, in contrast with the alternative, just seems to be the logical way to go. Mm. Well, as we thank you so much, Tom, I couldn't agree more. Um, that I mean, we house 25 percent. Um, this statistic is, is very prominent in the United States. Finally, 25 uh, percent of the total global prison population, and yet we are 5 percent or less, slightly less of the total global population, and. And I just really appreciate that um, also the in 1973, there was a, a proclamation. I don't have an official citation or link to share with you about it, but if you Google it, you can find it. Um, the Department of Justice said um, that we're just making more criminals. The punishment just doesn't work. And yet very, very much um, the arc went the other direction. And so here we are at a critical point in in history 
and we have a we have a really phenomenal choice at hand. And I just really appreciate that you are speaking um so openly and honestly about your experience and we're willing to go on camera to share and to, to you know, to help people see that, that this can be a, a safe process and one that's very transformational and humanizing for all involved. And so I, I want to go into some closing thoughts here. Uh, one of the things that I know that uh, the Reform Alliance is working really hard on is um, and the redemption project in general is, you know, okay, we have we have we've had this incredible eight-week docu series. So what next? And and so I would ask each of you if you'd be willing to share, what would you like to leave us with as we come to conclusion tonight? Um, what is most important for people to carry with them after the conclusion of of I think probably one of the most powerful um, major media series that I know that I've seen in my lifetime. I, I can go. Um, I think that healing is possible, and I actually would like, I did a victim-offender dialogue and um, a drunk driving accident where Siobhan, who was eight, had, at that time lost her father, and she said, I want to meet the person that took my daddy's life. Uh, she had to wait 10 years. But when she did, and, you know, really uh, got a lot out of meeting this man, what she said at the end was about restorative justice. She says, restorative justice boils down to this, seeing and being seen listening and being heard, revealing the truth and then bearing witness to that of our fellow human man. No matter how difficult that might be, it is the profoundest gift that one can give or receive because too often the person's, the person's truth becomes a burden to bear or be buried. And I think also so over the, the decades, you know, we have institutionalized a lot of our human affairs and kind of believe that we can, you know, live lives without the messiness of our humanness. And this is, I think, the greatest gem, you know, that restorative justice brings is, you know, to step full and not move away from, you know, our our emotions, our pain, our hurt, and that and the moment where we really just stay with it, you know, just stay with it, something very magical happens, and that's when, you know, this, this great healing takes place. And uh, I think it's best said by Stephen Levine, who says, to heal is to touch with love that which was previously touched by fear. And I mm. think restorative justice really, you know, is is grounded in love. You know, we, we, we don't like that word a lot, but to me and uh, as a Buddhist, you know, and, and the Tibetan Buddhists understand love simply as the well, you know, the wish for somebody else's well-being. 
you know, if we all can just stay and work towards that everybody is well taken care of. And, you know, as Tom said, seeing, you know, and being told mm. that they are worthy and a gift to the world, we would be living in mm -hmm. a very be in a much better world. Mm. Those are my closing closing thoughts. Mm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Tom, any closing thoughts tonight? Yes, I'm, I've got a couple of things. Uh, the first one is that I think you men mentioned uh, something about going forward. Um, what I would like to see, and uh, last week's forum uh, dealt a little bit with this, but I'd like to see going forward Restorative Justice Incorporated into the the prosecutorial model that is primarily responsible for uh, those statistics you mentioned earlier, Molly. Um, they're the gatekeepers. They're the ones that decide who to prosecute, how to prosecute. Um, and I had an interaction with a thief uh, a few months back uh, where something of mine was stolen, and I had contacted um, the district attorney's office about, um, you know, engaging in some sort of restorative justice uh, approach. And with no disrespect at all to those involved, they had no idea what I was talking about. They'd never heard the term. Um, and uh, uh, when I tried to explain the concept, you know, in the hallway outside the courtroom, you know, before the case was called. Uh, you know, needless to say, I couldn't really do it justice in that environment. But, um, you know, that lack of knowledge or information is telling, I think, about, uh, at least, you know, in that case. And I, I would guess in most cases uh, that it, it's a concept that has not reached out and found itself within that prosecutorial model. And I I think where you have a model where every, you know, defendant is an enemy and, you know, that you're going to do everything you can to see that they get as much time as they can, um, that, that those statistics aren't going to change. Um, and I think the restorative justice process provides an, a not just a viable alternative, but one that has the potential to not only address the harm, but also help the victims and, you know, maybe prevent some of these decades-long uh, imprisonments. You know, and I'm sure if most DAs understood that, you know, uh, their victims were imprisoned at that moment, and that there was a way to release them, 
you know, that they would embrace that, you know, those concepts. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is um, um, uh, how much I appreciated uh, first all of the previous five episodes uh, and all of the people that participated in those episodes. Um, Christy and I have watched each and every one and you know there are these unique bonds that are uh, gained by people that suffer trauma and adversity together and I feel like I know each and every one of them uh, and what they've been through and to watch them struggle through that and try to gain some um, uh, peace and uh, happiness in their lives has been truly inspiring for me. Uh, and I just uh, I just want to thank all of them for doing that. And I've learned so much from them, you know, listening to their struggles and their stories, as I'm sure I'll learn from the next uh, couple of episodes. Um, uh, Christy also wanted me to read something. Uh, she says, I'd like to say to victims of trauma, there's joy and happiness after trauma. Even after years of deep depression, love and grace can win. Uh, and I would second that uh, uh, statement. Uh, and finally, I'd, I'd like to just uh, thank and kind of, you know, recognize the uh, film crew. Uh, I've never been the subject of a, a documentary in my life, hopefully never again. <laughs> but uh, uh, they they were uh, kind, uh, deferential, uh, graceful, uh, thoughtful. Uh, I could go on and on. Uh, if, uh, you know, having somebody with a camera follow you around can never be said to be a, a, an enjoyable experience. Uh, uh, I can only imagine that people like that would be able to accomplish it. Uh, and I appreciated uh, and continue to appreciate all of their hard work uh, and professionalism as they went through it. Uh, and that's that. The Citizen Jones a Production Company, uh, Jonas Bell, uh, past Jason Cohen, uh, the executive producer, uh, Angela Borg, who held mine and Christie's hand on a number of occasions as we struggled through the process, uh, and supervising producer Joel Nason, and the entire crew. They were just amazing, uh, and they. Uh, by the end of it, we felt like they were part of our family. Um, and if you're going to have somebody tell your story, uh, that's the sort of people you want telling it. Uh, so I just uh, I wanted to say thank you to them and kind of recognize their uh, you know their abilities. And may, may, may I may I add? Actually, I really would also like to thank the you know CDCR and and Victim Services to allow this to happen. 
you know, the because four four of the dialogues were filmed in uh, California. Well, the first one was already out, but they were you know intimately involved, and also overall uh, for them to really have taken on the VOD program and and making that more and more a possibility for so many people to come. And, uh, yeah, the relationship we have as a restorative justice agency with victim services is is uh, very special and very collaborative. And I really appreciate uh, Mike Young and Nalise Edwards, uh, Nalise Edwards being the chief and Mike Young, the uh, office manager, office services. So uh, much gratitude to all their work on you know on behalf of victims because a lot of people don't even know that CDCR actually has a department of victim services one molly can i one more <laughs> please thank you please absolutely tom thank you um and we had another angel with us throughout this process and that's uh, Allison Espinosa uh Sechko. Uh, who is uh, uh, very dear to us, uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, uh, she was. Uh, uh, Christy was actually my support person <laughs> for the uh, my bod, and Allison was the support person's support person facilitator, and uh, we uh, couldn't imagine. A sweeter, more graceful, wonderful person than her, and um, uh, she uh, and both Martina both reside in a very special place in both of our hearts. Mm. Love and grace can win. Thank you, Christy, for that, and. Thank you so much, Tom and Martina, for being with us briefly here tonight. Um, there's so much more that we could go into together, I'm sure. But just thank you for taking the time to share some reflections on your process, on on the powerful episode six, which was, of course, just this last Sunday evening. And all the honoring and gratitude is so deeply deserved. Um, thank you, Van Jones. Thank you, The Redemption Project and CNN Original Series, and um, Citizen Jones, Magic Labs Media, and all of the amazing people behind the Reform Alliance. Please make sure to check out the Reform Alliance just launched in January of 2019. That's reformalliance, all one word, dot com. And definitely be checked. Van's new podcast, which is Incarceration Inc. That's posted actually on the Redemption Project page at CNN. And finally, again, um, just thank you for your participation in this discussion series. Please join us next week as we host uh, the facilitators and stakeholders from Episode 7. And then in concluding, um, on June 18th, we will be hosting the same for Episode 8. And the question really is, um, again, 
how can we cultivate uh, a humanizing justice system together? And you've given us so many answers to that question just by the, the um, allowance of giving us the opportunity to see your own process, Tom and Christy and, and Martina and Jason as well. So thank you for allowing us a window into the power of restorative justice and into, um, you know, the very human struggles that we all have because conflict is inevitable um, and it's something that, that we can find different avenues and ways to resolve and to understand together and to co-own. So thank you again um, on behalf of Restorative Justice on the Rise and again acknowledging the Redemption Project with Van Jones. And we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone.